Warning, this show may contain adult content, language, and humor, and is intended for mature audiences. If that's not you, please stop listening now. Nothing you hear on Sex and Science Hour is intended as medical advice, financial advice, legal advice, therapy, or really anything other than entertainment. Please take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Oh, and if you're hearing us on an affiliate network, the ideas and views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the network you're listening on or of any sponsors or affiliate products you might hear about on the show. Now that all that's out of the way, let's start the show. This is Sex and Science Hour with Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Get your freak on. Well, it is Season 5, Episode 2 here on Sex and Science Hour. And some things change, but some things stay the same. And one thing that's always stayed the same on Sex and Science Hour is here on this show, we love farts. Who doesn't love farts? I mean, I know some people don't. Some people think they're yucky and prefer not to discuss them, but we're not those people, right, Brian? No, not at all. I love the smell of my own product. I mean, I'm all into Dutch <laughs> well, ovens. I don't know if I would go that far, but, uh, hey. you know, they're they're part of science. You know, it's, it's the chemistry of the body. And th- now there is an ingestible pill that can track your farts in real time and spit <laughs> out the data onto your phone. It's 2018, people. Get with the program. Bluetooth farts. <laughs> Bluetooth farts. Tell, tell me more. Tell me more. Well, appropriately, I've got an article here that's from Ars Technica. Jeez. Oh, Have you even seen Braveheart yet? <laughs> I don't think so. I think I tried to watch Braveheart, but I know the memes, but I've never really seen Yeah, yeah, movie. that's all right. Right, rock and roll. Okay. Well, anyway, why would you want to track farts, right? Well, because they can reveal a lot of medical data. It's actually very useful information to have. There are some certain tests that you can do um, where you can test whether there's hydrogen gas being produced or there's certain gases being produced. Uh And it means you have bacterial infections. Like, for example, H. pylori, the bacteria that causes stomach ulcers, and may actually cause stomach cancer now that the, now they're finding that out, um, produces hydrogen gas. And one of the tests for seeing if people are infected by it is this test to monitor hydrogen gas production. Okay. Um, also, lactose intolerance. I guess if you're lactose intolerant, you will produce a lot of gas, but it's a specific type of gas. One of those, I think, is also hydrogen gas and maybe some CO2 or some other stuff like that. And that is one of the tests for lactose intolerance as well. So it is actually very useful to know more about the composition of farts. Now, you could say, like, why don't you just sniff your farts? And, you know, like, you could have a connoisseur. Well, quite frankly, who wants to have that job, right? Yeah. (laughs) I know we already have a sensor for farts. It's called the human nose. But this is a little bit more scientific. So uh, (laughs) Ars Technica by Beth Mole. With ingestible pill, you can track fart development in real time on your phone. Scientists often hope to break ground with their research, but a group of Australian researchers would be happier with breaking wind. 
<laughs> the team developed an ingestible electronic capsule to monitor gas levels in the human gut. When it's paired with a pocket-sized receiver and a mobile phone app, the pill reports tailwind conditions in real time as it passes through the stomach to the colon. The researchers, led by Koresh Kalantar Zadeh of RMIT University and Peter Gibson of Menashe University, reported their investi- invention on Monday in Nature Electronics. Now, Nature Electronics, that is nothing to sneeze at. That's a good journal. Sure, so okay. this is not like some shitty journal like we reported on last week with these psychology things that are done on college students. This is a real deal. <laughs> <laughs> the authors are optimistic that the capsule's gas readings can help clear the air. Just for the puns alone, it's worth it. Oh. Over the inner workings of our intricate innards and the multitudes of microbes they contain, such fume data could clarify the condition of each section of the gut, what the microbes are up to, and which foods may cause problems to the system. Until now, collecting such data has been a challenge. Methods to bottle it involved cumbersome and invasive tubing and inconvenient whole-body calorimetry. Popping the electric pill is a breeze in comparison, and early human trials have hinted that the pill can provide new information about intestinal wind patterns and gaseous (laughs) turbulence from different foods. So here's what they did. For the pilot study, the researchers made a prototype that they had previously tested in pigs. The capsule is 26 millimeters in length. So 2.6 centimeters. So that's a pretty big horse pill there you're talking. uh, With a 9.8 millimeter external diameter. So almost... I guess almost one centimeter wide, like a large vitamin. Its polymer shell surrounds sensors for temperature, CO2, hydrogen, and oxygen, as well as a button-sized silver oxide battery and a transmission system. One end of the capsule contains a gas-permeable membrane that allows for fast diffusion of gut gases, and that's how it measures the gas. We have a little diagram of it here. We'll link to this article in our show notes in case you want to get down and dirty in depth with this. (laughs) Uh, In the trial published Monday, researchers tested the capsule in six healthy people. For for the first, researchers monitored the pill's intestinal tract using ultrasound and link locations with gas profiles. This thing has a little GPS in it that tells you where it is. (laughs) Digestive. Oh, that's nice. Tract. And they linked it, you know, they mapped out the gut, basically. They, in, in its maiden voyage, they said, okay, when it's in the stomach, it has this acid pH and, you know, different gases. When it's in the colon, it has a different profile. So they mapped it out. Overall, it took 20 hours to get from one end to the other, spending four and a half hours in the stomach, two and a half hours in the small intestine, and 13 hours cruising through the colon. In that time, the pill took continuous gas measurements, revealing potentially useful information in addition to gut position. For instance... CO2 and H2 levels peaked early, peaked in the early hours of its time in the colon, <laughs> while oxygen levels crashed through this stretch of the trip. That jives with the horde of anaerobic bacteria, those that live without oxygen, that inhabit the colon. Therefore, they ferment undigested food into short-chain fatty acids that play significant roles in our health and metabolism. Okay, all right, all right. So, th- n- like, nobody needs this. I mean, this is great for for figuring. <laughs> it's not stu- exactly a consumer. Product, no, it's not. But it right. would be a diagnostic tool. Right. I could see this being helpful, maybe even for some patients. It could be helpful for like a study. Yeah. To figure all this. But stuff it's not out. like track your fart app. Yeah. It's the, not like a fun. You know. <laughs> right. Right. And I'm. But I'll tell you, there are going to be people out there, and I think that this this attitude. I mean, whatever makes you happy, makes you happy. Go ahead. But I'll call it when I see it. 
that I think are fucking insane. These are the same people who measure like their, their amount of stool that they drop and everything. I mean, this was a thing where she people it like it's hot. Yeah. I mean, where people would be like, they'd be, all right, how many shits did I have today? How much did I, I mean, like they would measure every little thing and this quantified self bullshit. Okay. Like I, I, I can't deal with it. Like what kind of time do you have on your fucking hands where you're doing this stuff? And I don't know, like I'm worried. That's kind of what I was saying at the beginning of the show. Like you can tell, I don't know about you and I'm sorry for anybody who's listening. If we're getting a little too personal here, Yeah. but like I can tell like if I'm having a lot of gas and it smells a certain way, I can tell that I'm sick, you know? Right. It's like, it just has certain types of gas have like a sick smell to them and you know that you're sick and you feel sick and like you don't need an app to tell you that obviously no right right but some people have gotten so out of touch with their bodies with this quantified self stuff that they're really not listening and tuning into what they actually feel and we have the best sensors oftentimes contained self-contained within our own bodies we often know our bodies best Right. I mean, eventually this shits out, right? Like, I mean, this doesn't yes, stay in it, the body. It took 20 hours for okay. it to get to one end to the other. All right. All right. So fortunately, I don't think like Fitbit is going to make this part of their next model where like, oh, and just swallow this pill and we can give you all these metrics because that's where my concern starts to come in is that eventually, and I'm sure I am, I'm so sure that at Fitbit, even at Apple and Google, that they are testing out these kinds of... Oh, these exact kinds of things. These yeah. kinds of sensors. They would love it if you had a sensor that you had to swallow that was from their company that you you would carry around literally inside your body and it would feed them data yeah. about, about you. Yeah. And, That's so invasive. Right. And they would sell it off as like, even this thing, they would sell it off as it's like, look, but because little Johnny swallowed that gastronomic sensor pill if it saves one child we knew we knew that wow you know if he didn't fart he was gonna die and it, i mean it, that that's what it's gonna come to and they'll that press story will come out and then suddenly you're gonna say oh we should all have fart pills i, I mean i'm just right well you're bringing up a great point brian because as we talked about on the show um several weeks ago they're now making certain medications that have a sensor within them that tells you whether you swallowed it or right. that tells somebody whether you swallowed it whether that be a parent an authority figure a caretaker a doctor somebody who has a lot of power over you perhaps because it's like a psych med you yeah. know so i mean those those are very important concerns to bring up and I also think it's it's totally justified to be concerned about the quantified self stuff just going out of control as well. Because listen to this. So there were in this experiment when they were testing this pill, mm. they basically did two tests, two scenarios. They had the person eat a high fiber diet with 50 grams of fiber in a day. <laughs> and now it's let me tell you, I eat a lot of vegetables. Yeah. But I track what I eat, and it's hard to get 50 grams of fiber in a day Yeah, right. if you're not eating, like, p foods that are pumped up with extra fiber added. You know, it's like, it's hard to get 50 grams of fiber. That's a lot of fiber. And then for the next phase, the person ate a low-fiber diet with less than 15 grams of fiber per day. That's pretty easy if you're not, you know, eating a standard American diet. It's, sure. You're probably going to be coming in under 15 grams of yeah, fiber. Yeah, you could rock that with a McDouble. Sure. <laughs> right. So... Um, so in the first scenario, when the person ate a lot of uh, a high fiber diet, yes, it detected more farts, but that was when the pill made it through in, um, I don't know, about 20 hours or something like that. But in the low fiber diet, the pill took three days to get shat out, essentially. 
<laughs> so it stayed in that person's body for three days, and they had to, like, give them some fiber to actually get them to shit the pill out. Wow. <laughs> well, so, so like, how long until Fitbit says, you didn't get enough fiber today, <laughs> you know, <laughs> eat your fiber. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, where you know where this is, this would be really cool. Okay, we're actually, I'd like to, I'd be intrigued to see how this could get used. Mm -hmm. I think they need to come out with a new human centipede movie. And, and <laughs> Where the pill just goes through everybody. Yeah, ass to mouth, did the whole thing. And, and like, this guy is tracking everything that's going on, you know, and he has like this whole app on his phone, and, you know, after he's sewn everybody ass to mouth. I, I, now that, that is what I, I want to see this. Th th this is a plot device. Not a medical device. <laughs> well, they ended on a very chilling note. Um, someone's commenting on this uh, who wasn't involved with the study, I don't think. Um, and they said it might not be too long before a routine healthcare visit involves a check of your vital signs and a request to swallow a tiny electronic monitoring device. Yeah, how fuck creepy that. is that? Yeah, you didn't want to go to the doctor before. Well, you really don't want to go now. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to say this quick. There, there's an old nugget of wisdom. I mean, this is really old. This goes back at least a couple hundred years, at least. And it's the more doctors there are, the more sick people there are. And Absolutely. No offense. To, I mean, well, I mean, my own girlfriend here. You, you know, you're you're a PhD. You were mm. almost an MD. I went to medical school for two years. I did not. I I didn't finish. Right by I, choice. Yeah, by choice. Yeah. Not um, like I failed out. I quit. Exactly. <laughs> but, right. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I learned a lot in that time. And one of the things I learned actually was that you know, going to the doctor for routine like well checkup visits when there's nothing particularly wrong with you, you're just going because mm -hmm. you think you're supposed to have a physical every year. That actually doesn't make people live longer. Right. Because as many things as they catch or whatever, as many things as those routine, like, silent illnesses that they detect early or whatever, they also find incidental things that were never going to hurt the person, and they end up doing interventions. Yes. And the interventions hurt the person. Or the doctor will prescribe some pill or something like that, and it's called iatrogenic illness, physician-caused illness. Right. Due to misdiagnosis due to over-interventionism, due to the fact that the illness wasn't going to hurt the person or kill them in the first place, but, we, but you know, the doctor didn't know that. Yeah. So there's risks to, there's always risks to too much medical intervention. And so that really hit home to me. Like, I'm not saying don't go to the doctor, especially if you're, you're sick and you need help and you can figure out what's wrong with you. But, I mean, there's just really not much evidence to show that going to to show that you can't go to the doctor too much. You can go to the doctor too much. Sure. And it might end up hurting you in other ways. Yeah, use this thing to get some research and then it's over. You know, figure out what we can figure out about the human body and then no more fart pill. Yeah, okay? I'm not swallowing any fart pill. Sorry. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> Maybe it would be better than a colonoscopy, but <laughs> I feel like it's not going to replace the colonoscopy. All right, well, nothing's going to replace us. We're going to be right back. Stay tuned. Ooh. This is Sex and Science Hour. U.S. government lifts ban on making viruses more deadly and transmissible, like a horror movie prologue. You don't even need the rest of the title. You just said U.S. government. I almost spit my tea all yeah, over. Yeah, that's a horror movie like, prologue. What the fuck? <laughs> like, do we ever even say that to each other? <laughs> yeah, I mean that—that's the horror movie right there. You know, let alone viruses. All right, so sorry. Uh, 
so, so they're 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 lifting the ban on creating viruses. Is this the um, yeah. viri? So here's here's the deal. Um, this is from Alternet, which obviously Alternet is a pretty you know left leaning like periodical, but I yeah, mean that's, that's okay. It's just every news source is biased in some way. It's just you just be aware of it. Except and for sex and science, are goddamn it, we are no, we're biased. We're definitely biased. <laughs> yes, we love farts. That's how our <laughs> that's our bias. Yeah, farts, as shown in the sex, last segment. Yeah, okay. Not in together, though. <laughs> no, you know, that doesn't always work. You're right. I mean, there's times where it's kind of funny, but like laughter can sometimes go too far with sex and then like you lose the, you know, you lose the moment. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, it's good. It is good to have a sense of humor about it, but you don't want to be like purposely bringing in. No, what about a queef? stuff? Unless you're into that. I mean, I suppose like some people. What about a queef? A queef is different. It is? Yeah. Tell me more. I mean, I think they're cute and funny. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I think they're cute. All right. But if you're being like, okay, the thing is. <laughs> Sorry, go, keep going. Yes, queefs can happen during sex. But if I feel like, you know, there might be some technique involved. Like if you're shoving a lot of air into your partner's vagina, uh-huh. that can cause queefs. <laughs> and you might be doing it wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. All right, we need to get serious. Yeah. <laughs> I'm All right. I'm going to fall over laughing here. <laughs> so, Alternate by Callie Halloway. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I'm just like picturing you, like somebody queefing and then like little butterflies are flying around. Oh, you know, that's <laughs> very sweet. Yes, I like All right, that. All right, serious, serious. Here we go. Okay. So, some horror movie tropes just come off as unbelievable. They're so ridiculous and overused, like girl who falls down for no apparent reason while being chased by a killer. Or group of friends decides to split up when it's obvious that being alone will get you murdered. And then there's this one. Scientific laboratory creates horrible disease that will inevitably escape and kill all of humanity, which might be, which might be the most unbelievable since it defies both logic and actual laws. Or rather, it did until Tuesday when the U.S. government announced that it was lifting a three-year ban on federal funding for experiments that alter viruses to make them deadlier. Gain-of-function research, in which, science ma- in which scientists make pathogens more powerful or easily transmissible, is aimed at preventing disease outbreaks by better understanding how they might occur. The scientists... Uh, Sorry, the studies allow scientists working in a highly controlled environment to learn how a flu virus might mutate into a superbug capable of killing millions of people, a sort of game of wits played to gain insight into nature's unpredictability. The ultimate goal is to proactively create vaccines, medications, and other solutions to stop contagion in its tracks. The new National Institutes of Health policy reverses a 2014 Obama administration funding ban on gain-of-function research projects, specifically in Involving all forms of the influenza virus, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, and Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS. The new rules would extend beyond those viruses, applying to any pathogen that could potentially cause a pandemic, according to the New York Times. For example, they would apply to a request to create an Ebola virus transmissible through the air. Possibly aware that this sounds like the prologue to a very hacky horror movie, the NIH accompanied its announcement with a list of criteria that proposals must meet before funding will be granted. 
According to those terms, a panel will only greenlight projects if the work promises to yield practical solutions, such as an effective antivirus treatment, the research benefits must significantly outweigh the risks, and researchers must prove their experiment outcomes cannot be obtained using safer methodologies. Contenders will have to prove their researchers and facilities have the capacity to do the work safely and securely and to respond rapidly if there are any incidents, protocol lapses, or security breaches. So don't worry. They've got it under control. <laughs> well, what's your I mean, I have thoughts, but what, but what's your take? OK, so first of all, it, this isn't really a ban. Like calling it a ban is is a little bit misleading. But prior to because there was a ban on funding, not it was on a the ban on research. funding. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. It was a ban on funding. Now, there might be actually bans on research, but I don't know if they can do that. It's just that so much of the research that is done in the United States is funded by like pretty much all academic and colleges and stuff like 90 plus percent of that government funded is government funded. Yes. Yeah, yeah. comes from the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. And they have to apply to the NIH for grants to do research. And of course, when you apply for a grant, they might tell you like, well, we'll fund this research, but we won't fund this research. Mm-hmm. And before they were saying we won't fund research that makes that creates deadlier viruses in order to study them. Right now. I don't know about private foundations. If if researchers could have gotten private grants to study viruses and give them gain-of-function mutations, I suppose they could have. I mean, that's always sort of how uh, research that's been banned by the NIH in terms of funding has been conducted in the past. For example, during the uh, Bush administration, when funding for stem cell research was banned for researchers who used embryonic stem cells that mm-hmm. were created new lines of embryonic stem cells, um, there were a bunch of private foundations that sprung up that would fund that research. But if a lab had a grant from one of those private foundations and a government grant, they had to have separate sets of equipment that one was for the stem cells and the other one wasn't. And it, it just created like a huge logistical mess. Right. And then we ended up getting new technologies that allowed us to create pluripotent, induced pluripotent stem cells from um, adult differentiated cells that are, you know, that came from an adult, not an embryo. And so the point was kind of made moot because you didn't really need to use embryonic stem cells anymore because you can make stem cells out of any tissue. So that was kind of sidestepped by technology. But I wonder about these, uh, these, infectious diseases researchers and where they get their funding from if there's if there's uh, private foundations or whatever. I mean, to me, it seems like a lot of these uh, deadly pathogens, are, infectious diseases don't exactly seem like big money because infectious diseases are things that can be cured, right? Mm-hmm. Ho- or hopefully you hope they'll be cured. Not all of them can, like HIV can't, but it affects uh, largely poor areas of the world sure. that don't have a lot of money for research funding. And a lot of infectious diseases also affect areas where sanitation isn't very good, developing countries and that kind of thing. And so, you know, and and if you, you know, if someone gets a dose of antibiotic and their infection is cured, okay, well, then the pharma company sold one dose of antibiotic, right? But if somebody has diabetes or high blood pressure and they have to take a pill for the rest of their life, that's much more money. You know, that's a blockbuster drug for the pharma companies. Right. So they focus on those more. So... There's interesting incentives in research that kind of make infectious diseases get a short shrift a lot of times, unless there's a political um, reason for it. Like everybody's talk. Remember in like 2011, everybody was talking about the bird flu or this, you know, the oh the avian flu, the yeah. avian flu. Yeah, and there were all these research grants, but then yeah, it, turned, it kind of yeah. it kind of petered out because you know it didn't turn out to actually 
be the pandemic that everybody thought it was going to be. Right. And so it kind of fell by the wayside. And I wonder what happened to all those people who got grants to study it because they didn't cure it. It just, you know, it kind of went away on its own. Yeah. I mean, there's other elements, too. Like there's like the stock market, believe it or not, actually has a lot to play in. Like if if certain stocks want to get sold off and the (laughs) the stock is related to a company that perhaps develops something related to a medicine or vaccine that's out there. um, You know, there's a lot of plays that will happen. I mean, so that you're talking about Ebola, right? Well, that's one example. So a couple. Let's explain this for the listeners. Uh So. A couple years ago, there was a big Ebola panic. There was an outbreak of Ebola that started in West Africa, I guess, and people were flying on planes around the world. Right. It got to the U.S. It got to other places. People were freaking out. Um, That, I don't think, could be transmitted airborne, Uh like the movie Outbreak, you know, Uh, which is everybody's afraid of that. Um, But at the time... What was it? Philip Morris's stock, like sold well, off a bunch of stock. Well, tobacco is a part of the. So yeah, treatment. they they were making a treatment for Ebola uh, in tobacco plants, right? And at the same time that that pandemic was going on, the stock of Philip Morris went way up or something, and they sold off a bunch, right? Yeah. So so the theory goes, and kind of conspiracy, but the theory goes is that there really wasn't much of an Ebola outbreak. But there was the claim someone was stirring up fear about it. Right. So that a bunch of people could get out of their, you know, tobacco stocks effectively, Mm. you know, whatever company it happened to be. Um, So, I mean, that's a part of it too. You know, but this, this really isn't that, I mean, other than it being the government, you know, which is nefarious in and of itself, Mm -hmm. okay, in the abstract, without government or with it, this isn't exactly nefarious. Okay. I don't think it is either. I mean, but they're playing it out like it's some kind of Hollywood, like, like yeah. horror film. You know? I mean, I can see the I can see the potential problem, right? Because it's impossible. Life finds a way, right? Like Jurassic mm-hmm. Park. Yep. You know, viruses and bacteria, they do get out of labs. Pathogens do get released into the wild. And yeah. even if you have these really secure facilities, it's very hard to control little hitchhikers like that from yeah. getting out. And it is possible that those pathogens will get into the wild. But on the other hand, how are you supposed to study them and develop better techniques if you don't actually have a virulent virus or if you don't actually understand how the virus becomes more virulent? or could mutate in nature? How are you supposed to be prepared for it if you don't study it? And is that extra knowledge that gets gained actually so valuable that it it really is worth um, allowing people to freely do whatever they want to make these things mutate? Yeah, for an analogy, there's no hero without a villain. And... You know, you need you need that villain or, you know, maybe you need to make a greater villain to make a greater hero. I mean, that's just an analogy, not that proof by analogy is proof, but that's the point. And so I I don't necessarily like, look, making super viruses and whatever else in general is a very bad idea because of the very reasons that you described, Mm -hmm. Stephanie. But at the same time. That just because that's what they're doing doesn't mean that they're looking to break the Geneva Accords or that, you know, this is going to somehow turn into a, a, a I don't know, the Walking Dead or some other bullshit <laughs> right. show like that. You know, uh, I mean, I that, feel that's, like there's going to be p- bad actors that will try to make more virulent pathogens. Right. I mean, uh, a while ago. Somebody isolated the 1918 influenza strain that was a pandemic Mm -hmm. strain of influenza. They isolated it from some person who was frozen in the ice who had died of it. 
Oh, wow. And they reconstructed the virus and they published the sequence of it. And there was a big controversy of that because now that this data is published, yeah, anyone could basically recreate this virus pretty easily. But the argument is that knowledge is power, like having that knowledge out there and having it in the hands of people who are going to do good with it is better than having it potentially only in the hands of bad actors, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I, you know, I really, I mean, granted, like biological warfare, okay, which is effectively what you're saying, right? Yeah. So biological warfare has a long history, you know, whether Mm -hmm. it's Greeks launching scorpions at the enemies or... Or whether Jeffrey Amherst um, launching smallpox infected blankets and corpses at the Native Americans and then getting a town in Massachusetts named after him. Exactly. This, This concept or, you know, poisoning wells, this concept goes back thousands of years, you know, Um. But I don't I I really don't think and I've yet to see the case where even like Nazi Germany or I mean, the not the Nazis certainly did a lot of medical experiments. In fact, granted, there was, you know, in the 80s, there was a major, major argument in the United States, in Colorado with U.S. doctors saying, should we even be allowed to use the data that we that we got from from the Nazi, you know, from the Nazis, from Nazi experiments because it was so unethically gathered. Okay, but. There, I don't know where there's in mod in the 20th century in modern history. I don't see a single case. Maybe it's out there, but I I I need really extraordinary evidence because these are extraordinary claims that that really that people were developing in any way, you know, kind of biological warfare or that somebody like I just I absolutely do not believe that the Soviet Union would have launched like some kind of crazy fucking virus on the U.S. That doesn't even make sense. Like, I I think I think that's so I mean, you want to talk about biological warfare like the U and medical unethical experimentation. The U.S. government deliberately infected people with syphilis and, you know, gonorrhea and untreated right and left them untreated it's called the tuskegee experiments and also it was done in modern day in like guatemala or something like that yes and right. just left them untreated to see what would happen i mean that's egregious that's biological you know something yeah no i i know and, and the japanese you know had their fair share of like testing on people in caves and all. i mean like th- there's that but i just i have a hard time believing that somehow like that that any any government would actually unleash on an entire fucking country. Okay. You know, some, some kind of disease like that, because you're literally going to wipe out the, there's no way you're not going to wipe, gonna wipe out, out the entire planet. As well. Yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. I, I, yeah. I'm just saying that I think, I think the, the, I'm a little annoyed at alternate for like playing this up in a way that is so vastly removed from the truth. Uh, yeah, I I mean it's true. It's not fair of them to equate a funding uh a ban on funding with a ban on research because right. that's not necessarily the case. But yeah. I could see how or they that would, they, they the, it. Yeah, or that somehow this is some great uh, uh This know. is something bad. Yeah, yeah right. it might not be a positive. I agree. I think I think it I think the truth will set you free. <laughs> yeah. You know, even if it's a scary truth, um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to just to study virulence and stuff like that. I'd rather understand it and be prepared to deal with it if it does happen naturally in nature than restrict the access to knowledge about that. Right. Because it's very important. Right. So free the free the the knowledge. So yeah, I just I just want to make really clear. 
I know that governments have done biological experiments on, you know, minor on populations, whatever else. Okay? Without I'm, consent. Yeah. Right. I'm well aware that that has happened. What I'm, but usually, and, and even like, you know, developments with gas and things like this, generally it was to be used against like an opposing army of some kind. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about like viruses being used because you don't just unleash a virus on a platoon. Okay. Like a virus spreads yeah, you know like that's like that right. that's going to that's going to wipe out a country mm-hmm. right and that's what i'm saying like i've never seen where somebody has said okay we're going to wipe out this country with this uh, biological weapon or something like that's just never i've never seen that come up you know not not like that and some people are probably going to email in and say well but they're putting lithium in the water and all that and isn't that the same thing and blah mm-hmm. blah blah okay like even if i bought your argument that's a lot different than developing a super virus Okay, for nefarious purposes. And that's what I'm saying, because that's that's not I really don't think that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they might say, you know, some nefarious government might develop a bioweapon and they have an antidote or a treatment and they're going to restrict access to that treatment. Yeah. Only their people or something. I I think I I think that even even, you know, and granted people in Washington and in any government house are are idiots. Um, I don't even think they're that stupid. Like I, right, because re- it's bound to not work or something, or yeah, someone will like, get access that, to that it. That is yeah. that is playing with just too much fire, and I think they know that. You know, I hope they know it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really do. All right. Well, speaking of playing with fire, we're going to talk to you about sexual communication coming up here in our next segment on Sex and Science Hour, and then we got several uh, listener questions, so you want to stay tuned. There's more coming up. Sex and Science Hour. This is Sex and Science Hour. Welcome back to the show. Now, everybody always says, in order to make your sex life better, you got to communicate, right? They say communication is the key to good sex. Yes. Asking for what you want, telling, giving your partner feedback, yeah. you know, uh, talking about what you do, what you would and would not like in advance, negotiating things. So all of those are elements of communication. Explicit communication. Explicit communication. I think is important. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because communication can have a lot of different forms. Right. Verbal, nonverbal, yeah. you know, uh, telepathic, I guess. That's the <laughs> least effective because humans don't have telepathy. <laughs> Not exactly. Yeah. yeah, you can't really be a mind reader. As much as you might be connected with somebody, nobody is a mind reader. So uh, we don't really do that. But, you know, communication is often cited as one of the most important things for enhancing your sex life. So how do you actually do it? How do you talk about sex? I think that's a great question. Nobody really talks about like the nitty gritty. They just say, oh, well, you have to communicate, but they don't tell you how. Right. (laughs) Right. If they even tell you that. I mean, the birds and the bees conversation usually just explains what happens, but doesn't really say, hey, should we talk? And oh, yeah. Some people never even get that far because we don't really have um, in American culture there. Let's just say there is a. A, a extreme lack of pleasure-focused sex education. Absolutely. Uh, accurate pleasure-focused sex education. Most people get any kind of pleasure-focused sex ed from porn, right? Yep. And that isn't always the most realistic when it comes to how to actually do certain things to well, result in pleasure let me that's just, real. <laughs> yeah, let me just say that as somebody who has family in the porn industry, um, they're not the best communicators in the world. So, ah, yeah. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Take that for what you will. Yeah, I mean, I would think you would have to communicate really well in porn because, you know, you don't want to hurt the person you're working with, right? And, yeah, I mean, there's some aspects of the industry where they communicate really well, yeah. but not always. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm sure that's the case. 
Um, so, yeah, a lot of people don't get pleasure-focused sex education. Some people never make it past don't do it as far as their sex education. Yeah. <laughs> they just get told don't do not do it. And if you do do it, you have to be married to the person, but then they don't give you any clue how to actually have fun, good, pleasurable sex if you are married or whatever. Right. You're supposed to go from being completely a virgin to having amazing sex with your husband or wife once you get married. But how do you actually get from there to here? You know, there's a lot that usually happens in between of learning. There's a learning curve to sex, just like anything else. So how do you communicate? We've got an article about that that Brian found. This is by Lori Mintz, PhD, from Psychology Today. Sexual communication, the bedrock to make your bed rock. She says, every, <laughs> every fall semester, I stand at the podium with over 150 college students staring at me, and I introduce myself and the course content for the psychology of human sexuality. I tell my students that one of my qualifications for teaching this course is that I've been having orgasms longer than they've been alive. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Amidst my students' surprised laughter, I continue on, using words like penis and clitoris matter-of-factly, as if introducing content for a math class and telling students that they need to purchase a calculator. What I'm actually doing is laying the groundwork for the simple but often ignored solution to sexual problems, the ability to talk about sexuality. This ability is absolutely essential when it comes to, no pun intended, closing the orgasm gap, the finding that women are having way fewer orgasms than men. Research shows that among women who tell their partners how they like to be touched, the vast majority have orgasms. Conversely, when women fake orgasms, which research shows about 70% of women do, 70%. Wow. Let that sink in. 70%. I faked orgasm. I have faked them. I will say it. I'm in the 70%. Wow. I don't, I don't do it anymore. I uh, reached a point where I got fed up and I said, I'm never doing this again. Fucking right. And I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right. Yeah. And they are training partners to do precisely what doesn't work for them, it says the article. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And by the way, like, no shame if you have if you have faked orgasms before or if you uh, if you currently do fake orgasms, no shame, no judgment about that. There's a lot of There's reasons. There's a lot that, of reasons yeah. why people do it. And it's not just women. Men fake orgasms, too. It's easy. Like you would say, oh, how can a man fake an orgasm? Well, you know, if they're wearing a condom, you just take it off. You yeah. know, it's like it's easy to hide, I guess. That yeah, our guys it. will say they had a dry cum or whatever. Something I mean, like, like that. that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, people certainly do that. They do it because they just want it to be over. Maybe they're not in the mood. Maybe it has nothing to do with their partner. They just know they're not going to come, so they they fake it to get it over with. They don't believe their partner will accept that they're just not going to come that night and, yeah. and stop. Um, or they feel like they are worried about their partner's ego. They're, they don't want to hurt the other person's feelings, right. so they fake it. Um, you know, they feel like they there's something wrong with them if they don't have an orgasm, so they fake it. Yep. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons people do this, and there's no shame about it. But, you know, it definitely, I, I think it, is, it isn't a long-term solution because if your partner thinks that you're having orgasms when you're not, they think, oh, there's nothing wrong here. They think, oh, okay, goal achieved. Everything's going well. But it's not going well. Yeah. They just don't know it. <laughs> don't do it to please the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most women fake orgasms during intercourse based on the false belief that this is how they should orgasm. Oh, that's another reason people do it because, right, 
like I said, they think there's something wrong with them. Yes. Uh, one recent study found that only about 18 percent of women orgasm from penile thrusting alone. I'm surprised it's that high. <laughs> in polls I've conducted with over 500 of my students and detail in my recent book, even fewer, about 5%, say that thrusting alone is their most reliable route to orgasm. The other 95% say their most reliable route involves clitoral stimulation, either alone, for example, oral sex, or coupled with intercourse, for example, using a vibrator during intercourse. Well, I guess all your students are straight <laughs> in that... <laughs> In that, uh, or at least having heterosexual sex in that study. If you're one of the 95%, she says, below, you'll find some tips for communicating with your partner about the clitoral stimulation you need both in and out of the bedroom. I've also included some pep talks along the way, especially for those showing new partners what they want, as many women report feeling especially awkward about this. During a sexual encounter, okay, here's the tips. During a sexual encounter, you can, one, let your fingers do the talking. Simply stated, put your partner's hand in the right place, guiding it with yours. Indeed, whether it's the first or the 50th time, you can guide your partner's hands to touch you the way you like. As the authors of the awesome website OMG Yes say, it's impossible to already know the moves with a new partner or with the same partner on a different day. What every woman needs to orgasm is a bit different, and one woman's needs can change from one encounter to the other. Thus, unless you provide guidance on the type of stimulation you need, you aren't likely to get it. And yeah. I agree. And OMG Yes is an app. This is really cool. Like you can download an app where there's actual women who are saying, de describing things that they like, specific sexual techniques that they like uh -huh. with little stories around them. And it has a almost like a game that you can play where you actually use your finger on the touchscreen of your phone to <laughs> like pretend that you're stimulating a pussy. Right. And then it'll give you feedback on like how you're doing. Yeah. And it has little, awesome. has little techniques like the, you know, stop and interrupt or whatever, or like circular motions or it has little things like that that specifically train you on actual physical techniques. Right. Um, so here's the next tip. Offer brief instructions. You can use words to convey your sexual desires, such as touch here or touch there, harder or lighter. More, faster, slower, harder are words that can be quickly and efficiently used. And be sexy at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course, such simple instructions could result in miscommunication. You could say faster and your partner could think this means harder. So it's important to be willing to continue giving ongoing instructions. Then when a partner hits it just right, you can give positive feedback, saying, for example, that feels great. Yeah, just like that. Or, ooh, keep doing that. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when they get it right, I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that. Yeah, keep doing yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> I don't exactly say it that way. but. <laughs> If giving such instructions sounds awkward or uncomfortable, you aren't alone. Women commonly worry that telling male partners, especially first-time partners, how to touch them will be perceived as pushy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, oh, how many times... Fragile egos. Ladies, how many times have you heard that advice in women's magazines? Don't tell him what to do. Don't yeah. boss him around. No, you know what? Let me tell you, because here's, well, one of a million areas where I, where I feel bad for, for women. Um, this, the, even this point here does not need to be initiated by the woman, a guy. So, so, all right. You so, can ask your partner for feedback. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Before How you're about, doing? what do you like? <laughs> yeah. And I know, I know there's people who make these really stupid and, uh, uh, childish, quite frankly, videos 
that on, like on YouTube that are about, oh, what would a world look like with enthusiastic consent needed at all times? And so they're having, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, a hetero couple having sex and the guy's stopping every second. Is that okay? Is that okay? You know, like every little bit that he moves <laughs> and they're trying and they think that they're being, you know, these, these conservative fucks think that they're being clever. Right. And saying that, see, this is the problem. You know, this is the world that you're going to create liberals way to go. And it's out. That's outrageous. Because really all a guy has to do is before you even start is say, hey, if at any point I'm doing something you don't like, or if you want me to change how I'm doing something, you let me know. Mm -hmm. You, the guy, not that she needs permission, but the guy, you can put that, you can put it out there. It's not permission. You can just say, look, I'm okay with this right out front that I want you to communicate with me and I want you to talk yeah. to me. Letting, and that letting them know that you're open to feedback. Of right. course. And that's that, really good in any situation. Exactly. Because there is tremendous pressure on women to not talk mm -hmm. or, or to not, to not tell Especially a guy that to he's doing wrong. not give negative feedback because you're going to hurt his feelings and his feelings are more important than yours. Right. That's a lesson you learned throughout your entire childhood. Yes, exactly. So, you know, so guys step the fuck up to the plate and you can start this up. You can start, you can start it off yourself and say, and, and let them know, Hey, you know, you just tell me and I'm okay with it. And if you're not, if you're the kind of asshole, that's not all right with that. And you just got to do business your way. Fuck you. You know, like, like you, you shouldn't even be, you shouldn't be getting laid quite frankly, because here's the other part. And this speaks to the, the, the first, the first segment or the first uh, uh, suggestion there mm -hmm. about like, use your hands to, yeah, to, to guide them and whatever else where you want it to go. Yeah. Look, re reality check. Um, as far as men go, there are no Casanovas. Okay. Like there, there are no, there is, there is this meme, a cultural meme. Okay. Not internet meme. There's cultural meme that, oh, there's just some guys that are just these great lovers, you know? And oh yeah. And they know all the right moves. If you believe that humans are individuals, that is literally impossible for there to be a guy who just knows how to play every woman's chords. Right. You know? Right, because people are different in what they like, and good lovers usually don't happen without a lot of practice, and yep. also without a lot of study, reading about it, asking for feedback, asking a lot of questions, and, you know, being really open to whatever the answers are. I mean, that's what makes a good lover, I think, is yeah. like looking for that feedback and realizing that everybody's different. Yeah, women's biology, just their biology. I mean, like, it's just different. It's or, or, What I mean by that is it's different for every one of them. Not that it's, you know, not that, that one's inferior to the other or something mm -hmm. like that. But I'm saying there's women who it takes 30 minutes to get them warmed up. Yep. There's women it takes five. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like, and that's the thing is that you can't know unless you actually are communicating with them. And that's what I'm saying. This cultural meme that somehow, oh, there's just these guys are, ooh, they're just so great. Ooh, they're just this and that. And like, no, 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 no. There needs to be a lot of communication for them to even to even know where to start mm -hmm. with any gal if they're going to be that great. If they're going to be, I mean, you can get that great with a person, but it's all a very individual experience. There is not some, you, you really... I think it's so cute that like Quiver and, and whoever else and Hooper and all these people write these books. Oh, here's these great sex tips and everything. And I'm like, yeah, that works for some, but mm -hmm. that doesn't work for all. There's no such thing as a generic sex tip, really, right. except to be open to feedback. And, you know, obviously, like, don't do anything your partner doesn't seem to be enjoying or says that they want you to stop, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and honestly, I think if you feel like somebody was just like instantaneously this great lover without communication, I guarantee you what was actually going on was this person you found really attractive. 
Okay. Yeah. And so you were orgasming because of the environment and the attractiveness. Yeah. It was in your head. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because he had all the right moves because he can't, he can't know, you know, <laughs> I mean, I guess he could be, a. I mean, law of averages, I guess, you know, he could be above average to some degree, but he's not somebody that's making you squirm to the back of your bed. Like, Oh, Oh, oh God. You know, I mean like that, that's, <laughs> there's just no fucking way. Like right. that, that's, that is literally impossible. So get these cultural memes about sex out of your out of your heads. All right. So anyway, please continue. (laughs) Well, uh, so she says that the men in my class say that they feel relieved when a woman gives them instructions for clitoral stimulation. They also say that they genuinely want to give women pleasure, but are often at a loss for just how to do so. And again, the fact that every woman needs something slightly different to reach orgasm makes it even more important to tell a new partner what you like. Even if the relationship doesn't go past one night, at least it will have been a good one. <laughs> That's yeah, <true>. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. So what they're saying is like, don't feel shy about telling a partner what you like. They want you to tell them what you like. They yeah. want to give you pleasure. They just don't know exactly how and they're not a mind reader. So don't be shy about about saying it. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think there can be a lot of great practice in this and like how how to I mean, because you, you can turn any conversation into dirty. You know, into dirty talk oh, yeah. that can be really hot. Yeah, I don't care how you know what what however you say it. Like, there's ways you can figure out to turn it hot if you're really concerned about that. Mm-hmm. And you don't even have to say it like they were saying before. Like, you can actually demonstrate it. Yeah. Like, how sexy would it be if somebody shows you how on themselves how they like to be touched? Oh fuck yeah! I mean, let, let's go all hot for teacher and just say, look, I'm going to show you, okay, how I want this done. Right. And you know, and learn and oh, please. So combine these skills is the last tip. These sexual communication skills are best when combined. For example, couple your words faster with hand coaching. Put your hand on top of your partners and demonstrate what fast means. Once your hand is removed, if they have it right, use words or moans or other sex sounds to give positive feedback. And, you know, I'd like to add something to that. Like another thing that people say a lot is like, Pay, don't just pay attention to moans because those can kind of be faked. And those like sure. sometimes people really moan for others benefit, especially women. Nothing wrong with that. They'll moan for their lover's benefit. Some people love like a woman who moans a lot or whatever. Yeah. But pay attention to other stuff like her breathing. They, that really can't be faked. Oh, yeah. yeah or right. like is her face flushed or is her chest flushed? That can't be faked either. Yeah. Are but, her toes curling or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> still treat that as secondary. I agree with you. Yeah. But I, I'd, I'd recommend still treat that as secondary oh, yeah. because words, it's not explicit. Words are better, right, yeah. of course. But, yeah. like, you know, if you're noticing those things, if you're noticing, like, heavy breathing that is obviously, like, just a physiological response, I'd say that is a sign that you're on the right track. Of course, verify it with words, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, if she's just moaning but it's not very convincing, that might be why because it's not accompanied by those other signs that you really can't control so much. Sure, right. Yeah. Um, Okay, so when not having a sexual encounter, she says, you can have a kitchen table sex talk. (laughs) This is an interesting tip. These are the talks that partners have about sex when they aren't having it. Of course, these talks don't literally have to be held at the kitchen table. They can occur in any non-sexual venue. They can be general positive discussions of things you want to try to make good sex even better. Or they can be used to solve problems. In fact, it's best not to bring up sexual dissatisfaction or any other difficult topic in bed. The danger is creating a negative association to a place that you want to be exciting and positive. No matter where you have such talks, for example, on a walk, in the car, at the actual kitchen table, 
when having problem solving sex talks, the key is to good is to use good general communication skills, such as I statements rather than accusatory you statements. Say, for example, I think it would help me get turned on if rather than you don't know how to turn me on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, another another good area for that could be like, you know, texting each other. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. On signal or something and just saying, hey, uh, this is, you know, hey, I would love if you did this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of that. I like that. I like the sexting idea, but I also think that there is um, there's such a depth to like in person communication, sure. or even even on the phone if you can't do it in person or whatever. Sure. If it's a long distance partner or something like that, there is something to be said for like text can be misunderstood sometimes. Yep, so it could, yeah, you know, you want the nuance in it. But I agree with like you can talk about sex outside of the bedroom, and especially if there's a problem or if there's something that you are you want to negotiate with a clear head, like a BDSM scene or something. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. would want to talk about that before. Or you get all hot and bothered. Right. <laughs> right. All right. Show, not tell. If you want to teach your partner exactly how to stimulate your clitoris, something that works wonders is to masturbate while your partner observes. While this idea sounds embarrassing initially for many people, those who have tried it give it rave reviews. As stated by a man in the book, I Love Female Orgasms, I've watched my partner masturbate. It was very helpful to me. Really watching her do it was a turn on as well as an educational experience. After watching, I could imitate the things she did to herself. Of course, if this feels too out there to you, another option is to take them to the movies. (laughs) You can watch a realistic, aka not porn, female masturbation video together. In fact, I'd suggest the many videos at OMG Yes. One of my clients and her husband watched several of the videos together, and she said that even after four years together, we both learned new things. I found new ways to touch myself, and he seemed to truly get the hang of how to touch my clit. Continuing on, she said, I mean, he's always been a great lover, but now, oh my God, yes, she laughed. (laughs) No doubt, taking your partner to the movies, specifically movies about clitoral stimulation, provides entertainment that lasts well beyond the show. Yeah. Any comments on that? No. Show, not tell? I like, yeah, I I like it. I think showing, just demonstrating a technique that you like is super helpful because the picture is worth a thousand words, right? Yeah, I mean, and video is th- worth a million words. Yeah, I think watching like even like instructional videos, like this is something that started to crop up on you know Pornhub and whatever else, uh-huh. uh, really a few years ago, where it's like it's almost like they really are it's almost like a class showing you okay this is you know one of the ways that you can you know get a gal to orgasm or whatever and some of them are pretty good in not being you know they they don't uh uh you know come from the perspective of shall we say male gaze right where it's mm-hmm. like this is meant to please the male uh when done right and who i mean who else doesn't tristan Terramino, i mean like they uh, they have all kinds of these jessica, instructional videos um, jessica drake drake yep um there, I think those can be really hot to watch, whether they are meant oh, to yeah. be or not, you know, and usually they are meant to be, but whether they're meant to be or not, like that, that can be really exciting. I mean, that, that adds a whole other element as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of instructional porn. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So that, yeah, I think that's fine. Uh, Take them to the library. That's the next tip. Give your partner something to read. I recently recommended that a student of mine and her female partner read the lesbian sex passages from the Height Report together. And she reported that doing so helped them both get more comfortable talking more directly about the specific type of clitoral stimulation they each wanted. One of my other clients recently came to a therapy session very happy, reporting that her boyfriend was reading and trying out instructions from Ian Kerner's how-to oral sex manual called She Comes First, which we've talked about on the show. 
And she says my own book, Becoming Clitorate, has a chapter specifically designed to teach male readers all about the power of the clitoris for the female orgasm. Another thing you can pick up, another resource, just a shameless plug here, is The Good Vibrations Guide to Sex, which (laughs) I narrated as an audiobook. (laughs) And I edited it. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) In sum, the vast majority of women need clitoral stimulation to orgasm. This is a fact we need to start talking about, both generally and with our partners in specific, be that a new or a long-term partner. When my students tell me they'd find it awkward to talk about sex, I semi-jokingly ask them if it's more awkward than having bad or unsatisfying sex. (laughs) That's a great point, right? What's worse, talking about it or having bad sex? (laughs) I think he'd rather talk about it. Or I quote the opening line from the communication chapter in Becoming Clitorate, taken from blogger Corey Silverberg. Quote, communication isn't always about talking, but I can promise you that one of the keys to great sex is inability to talk about it. I can also promise that it's easier to learn about sex than it is to learn to read minds. (laughs) Pretty good. Yeah. Thanks, Lori Mintz. That was a great article. Yeah, I agree. Communication, number one. Communication is number one. And speaking of which, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, if there is a great, if there is the, if there really is this notion of the great lover, the naturally great lover, it's because they're communicating very quickly mm. or, you know, they're, they're getting that underway. Very quickly. Right on. Well, speaking of communication, we have some communications from our listeners. You want to get into some listener emails? Yeah, let's do it. All right. First one is called Leg Day. Oh, Brian, no. you and I did leg day. Yeah, leg day is like the bane of your existence. This is a fitness question, okay? It's the bane of almost any bodybuilders or any any real fitness person's like existence, I think. Yeah. By the way, if you have questions for us that you want us to talk about on the show, you can post them in the Sex and Science Hour Facebook community. At uh, it's it's on Facebook. It's called the Sex and Science Hour Podcast Community, and you can request to join the group. You're going to have to say like who we are, but it's really easy. You know, questions really easy. Yeah, just to filter out spammers. It says our names at the beginning of the show in the opening. So in case you don't know, there's no way you I'm don't know. Stephanie. He's Brian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we say that a lot. But anyway, yeah, you can post your questions in the Sex and Science Hour Podcast Community Facebook group, or you can email it to us at show at sexandsciencehour.com or use the contact form on our website sexandsciencehour.com. Right. Really easy to contact us. And we love listener questions. And uh, we like to get all kinds of topics questions. It doesn't have to be a sex question. It could be about leg day, which is what our next person asked. So he says, damn, it's been a while since I started doing leg day. I'm super tired during my workout this morning. Is that normal for leg day? Man, I can run yoga along with abs and upper body and feel fine. But legs? Holy shit. I don't think I should do anything else on leg day beyond yoga. So he's asking, like, why do I feel so sore? What can I do? (laughs) So funny thing with legs, um, because you'll find some research that says, really, we never need to do a leg workout. Uh, because, you know, especially people what that live blasphemy. in the, well, especially people that live in the city, because most people just walk all the time, you know, uh, I mean, if you're doing leg day, part of that is you're going for a certain look, right? Like I that, agree. I was going to say, it depends on your goals, right? What are you yeah. training for? What do you want to look like? That's the reality around all fitness. You, and you need to answer those questions. Mm-hmm. What do you want to look like? Okay. Uh, because again, if you're not concerned, if you have quote unquote, what gets called chicken legs or not then for fuck's sake, don't do leg day, you know? Yeah. Or if you just genetically don't have chicken legs, no matter how little you work out your legs, then fine, whatever. Right. So but a lot of, you know, there that is a common problem that I think people who are beginning in fitness make is like men, 
especially, they will spend a lot of time working on their upper body and their arms, but they don't spend any time working on the lower body. And it creates this unbalanced look where their arms and shoulders get really big, but then their legs are skinny and it looks out of proportion. Yeah. I mean, people go for the show muscles and Mm -hmm. there's, there's, Parts of that that aren't unfair. You know, I I say this a lot like. But your thighs and quads and butt, those are show muscles. (laughs) Like they they can be. Yeah, they they really can be. Mm -hmm. But you could also just wear jeans the rest of your life. And you You could, but you can't hide it after a certain uh, point. I think you can kind of get away with it. For example, okay, Kevin Nash, right? Big sexy. He this is this guy was a wrestler. Mm -hmm. Huge dude. Almost seven feet tall. Okay, you know, great look. Tremendous upper Don't body. Don't tell me he's got chicken legs. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and in fact, if you see, if you watch him in, because uh, he's in both of the Magic Mike movies, in one of them you see him mm. with his pants off, and he looks way out of proportion. Mm. And I think he's had a lot of leg surgery too, which is why he's he hasn't been able to wrestle, say, with the same length and frequency that like a Hulk Hogan or a Ric Flair has. I see. Okay. Well, uh, if you had a knee injury and you, could, you couldn't really work out your legs, I could understand. Yeah, but I, I think it was like that. I mean, he's just always worn pants. Like even when he was Diesel in, in the mm. WWE and everything, like he's just always worn pants. And so I think it's always kind of been a thing for him. Whatever. He's a big guy. I get it. But that's the thing. The reason, and, and this, this speaks to the reason for this all, okay, is that I think the reason that leg day hurts so much, and it does for me too. You know, and not that I have chicken legs and I'm not, and I really don't mean to insult anybody that has them. Okay. Because there's a lot of different reasons. Look, it's, they, these are muscles that are tough to get size on. I think that's the reality. Now, Mm. genetics play a lot and you know this better than I do, Stephanie, but genetics play a lot in a person, whether or not they can even build up muscle in certain groups. Right. Oh yeah, definitely. Right. But yeah, I think the reason that it hurts so much, not so much. I mean, we use our legs all the time. It's not like because they don't get used. It's because to do what it takes to get size, to really show off the muscle, it's we're like, using our legs in a different way than we normally yeah, use them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like triple the work of any other muscle that you that you're going for. You mm-hmm. know, uh, especially calves and and all of this. I mean, like it it's, it's to grow hard. to grow a muscle. So muscle hypertrophy is what you're going for when you're building body or lifting weights. Usually, mm-hmm. if you want to get big muscles, that's called muscle hypertrophy. And the way you induce hypertrophy is by creating little micro tears in your muscles and then resting them so that they build back up and when they come back the muscle fibers are thicker you don't get more muscle fibers but you can thicken the existing muscle fibers right right? and so that's muscle hypertrophy basically and there's more to it you know there's hormones involved and insulin testosterone that kind of thing that's why people eat protein after a workout and usually eat it with carbs to try to induce insulin because that's an anabolic hormone it's going to make your muscles bigger um but anyway yeah. So in order to grow muscles, you have to beat them up. You have to create those little micro tears and then rest them in order for them to grow. And usually we're not using our legs, I think, in ways that are really creating that tearing in such well, a noticeable way. They, they're not they're not even able to move in all the complex ways that, say, your arms are. Mm-hmm. You know, which makes it very different. And then you have gravity, because like you said, you're beating it up. Well, gravity is going to going to you know affect your legs way more than any other body part. Mm-hmm. Really? It's harder to rest them, too, especially exactly. if you're working for your job or whatever. You're standing up, you know. Right. You, you're going to have to lay down or sit down to rest your legs. And so, yeah, um, I, I think that might be why they, they get so sore, because yeah. we're not used to using them in that way. And it's also harder to rest them. Now, what can you do for soreness? Um, that's a big debate. So some people say 
you know, go in a cold chamber, like cryotherapy, right? So some people say, like, jump in a cold pool 50 degrees after you work out. It cuts down on the soreness. Some people say go in a hot tub that flushes out the lactic acid or whatever. Now they're saying it's not really lactic acid that makes your muscles sore. It's actually like potassium and just the tearing itself and the inflammation. Hmm. It, like, it used to be like, oh, yeah, I've got so much lactic acid built up in my muscles. Now they don't think it's actually lactic acid. But whatever makes them sore can be flushed out by various techniques like temperature changes, so hot and cold, icing muscle or heating it to make it relax, Yeah. Um, and by movement. So movement clears out the, those waste products that accumulate when you use a muscle and make it hurt because they cause inflammation. So if you're sore, try to move just a little. Do a gentle movement. So I'm talking like gentle stretching, gentle walking squatting, you know, changing positions, just Mm -hmm. kind of just do a little bit of movement and you'd be surprised how much that helps with the soreness. Yeah. So a couple things. One is that, you know, you can change up to where you're doing like whole body workouts. And some people say that when you're doing whole body workouts every day or five days a week or whatever, uh, that you get, you can get similar results um, without beating up your body. So you're, you know, like one segment of your body so hard. Uh, I don't, well, again, what's your goal? You know? Yeah, yeah. That comes down to goals. I mean, I don't, I think that's a much slower process. So I'm not the biggest fan of whole body workouts. Um, I know and there's then, other like, when do you rest? Those. You know, if you're working every body part every day, when do you well, actually rest? Yeah. Usually you don't necessarily do every day. You'll do like five days. A week oh, or okay. Something. Got it. But yeah. Um, as to where when you're doing split training where it's specific muscle groups, One you group really, a day. yeah, you yeah. really can do every, you know, you could do every day. Yeah. Um, yeah, cause you're just rotating the part that you're focusing on. Yeah. You know, something that actually a woman taught me this, uh, Neela Ray, mm-hmm. you know, she made it very clear, like, yeah, I guess what you're going to feel sore. You re- and, and she didn't mean this. She really didn't mean this in a mean way. She's just Swedish. And she said, she's like, you just, you just have to power through it. Like you're going to feel that. And that's it. Like, mm. like you just, you have to ignore it. You have, you have to keep going um, because it's, your body's going to be telling you to stop training, you know, like that, that's, or that's what you're going to be thinking that the signal means. That's not what it means at all, you know, and, and that soreness in many ways is actually is, is growth. I know that sound that might sound obvious to some people, but you know, you're told so often, oh, if you feel any kind of pain, stop what you're doing. Not so in fitness all the time. I mean, if it's like sharp pain, yes, fucking stop. Right. But if it's just soreness, um, that's, you know, it's not no pain, no gain. That's bullshit. But it's just that's it's part of the game. That's normal. Yeah. yeah. You're trying to go for that. Right. Right. And some people love that feeling of soreness, by the way. Like some people want it and get addicted to it. Yeah, that does happen. <laughs> but it can also be a, a major pain in the ass. Like not yeah. everybody's into BDSM all the time, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think he's on the right track with yoga. Um, yep. it, you know, just don't overdo it. Like if it really hurts to stretch, just do gentle yoga. Like just be gentle to yourself. Absolutely. I, I, I actually don't agree. Like if you... So in order to get that muscle growth, you do have to rest the muscle. And if it's still sore, you maybe you haven't rested it enough. But usually that soreness will go away within two to three days at least. Right. Yeah. I don't know, because I've done like especially if it's been a while since I say did a workout or something, which over the years, there's been points where I've had, you know, quote unquote, dry spells. Uh, And and if I get come back to like a leg workout or even it might not even be specifically a leg workout or it's a lot of squats or something. 
I'll feel that for weeks, for like a couple of weeks oh, where, yeah. you know, the top of my leg. It's true. If you're just getting be, back into it. Yeah. Yeah. You get more soreness. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it can, right. it'll hurt for a while. But, but that gets better. Like as yeah. you, as you get adapted and you get more fit, um, it is, you don't get that long lasting soreness as much as that first workout back in the gym after a couple months off. Yeah. Know? That's, that's where you just, you power through it. Yep. I agree. Yeah. All right. Hedonism. Got another question. Ooh, wow. My favorite subject. Fitness and <laughs> I hedonism. I know. These are great questions. All right. Uh, went to the gym, refreshed my hair color today, had my payday treat, Chipotle. Now I'm enjoying some of my favorite vices. How do you do hedonism? I view hedonism as part of one's self-care, but not all of what self-care entails. So how do you do hedonism, Brian? Wow. That's an interesting and broad question. Yeah. Um. So hedonism means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Yep. If what you, does it mean to you, first of all? Well, if you type in hedonism in Wikipedia, you are not going to end up with a, pic- a picture of a drunkard. Okay. Like that's just not going to come up. Mm-hmm. Or pictures of orgies aren't even going to come up. What's going to come up is what's called ethical hedonism. Okay. Uh, you know, you're going to find out about Aristippus and Epicurus and, you know, a lot of other names. Okay. Uh, hedonism in a nutshell is that the purpose of life is for you to be happy. Okay. Like that's, that's it. There's a, even, even under the, understand that hedonism is the single oldest philosophical school that we have record of. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the Sumerians. You can find in the Epic of Gilgamesh where it says, eat, drink, be merry. Yeah. You know, the whole thing. Okay. Um, it is far older than stoicism. There is nothing. There's literally no other philosophy older than hedonism. So people deal with it. This is legit as, as it fucking gets. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry. You, you kind of sounded a little defensive there. <laughs> well, I get mad about it. Because... I'm sure you get a lot of like misunderstanding. Of oh yeah. 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 Because people are, well, you can't just go out there. Well, what if, what if making you happy is killing somebody you don't understand hedonism Mm -hmm. okay because it's not at somebody else's expense and it's not supposed to be at your own expense either right 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 like because i i think there's where people get confused is like there's it seems like at times short-term pleasure or happiness quote happiness is at odds with long-term joy or mm -hmm. happiness or pleasure You know, so for example, it might feel really good to get extremely drunk one night, but the next day you're going to feel like ass. Right. So how do you maximize your happiness in that situation? You know, is actually getting really drunk that one night worth it? And is it is that actually making you happy according to hedonism or is it or or would it actually be better to sort of moderate yourself so you don't get that hangover or do it only once in a while or whatever? Right. Yeah, well, I mean, everything... And that's a question everybody has to answer for themselves. Exactly. That That's totally up to individual choice. Because for some people, they can absolutely get drunk every night and function. You know, what do they call them? Functional drunks, whatever. Functional I mean, alcoholics. Or functional alcoholics. <laughs> yeah, whatever you want to call it. Um, but they're not really that fun... Like... Well, there, there's, yeah. again, it's all, this is all up to Functional the individual. Functional is a relative term. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first off, this question gets hedonism right. How do you practice hedonism? Exactly. It's a personal thing. It's a very personal thing. It's a very individual thing. It's like religion. It's a personal practice. Sure. (laughs) Or Uh, yoga. (laughs) Sure. Uh, So, anyway, um, how do I practice hedonism myself? Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I mean, that's asking me what makes me happy. Yeah. But what do you do anything like do specific activities like she's saying that every Friday on payday, she goes to Chipotle because she really likes that as a treat. Sure. So do you have anything that you do like that, like a cheat meal or like a like a 
shave your head. Like she said, she colored her hair and she's smoking a cigar. Like, uh, do you have anything like that that you do and that you consider part of your personal practice of hedonism? I mean, my workouts, you know, that go Mm. an hour plus every day are absolutely one of my greatest joys in life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and before that, there, there might be I mean, I don't know, because we, we we live a very different lifestyle, you and I. I think our lifestyle is pretty unconventional. That's safe to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because um, it's tough to like, we don't exactly like schedule stuff like that. You know, like I, I don't, other than the workout, yeah. there's a time where I know I like to do it. But um, but I mean, how do I practice hedonism, you know, straight up? And, and this is the part where I guess it might f- feel like the conventional definition of the term, but sex, mm-hmm. like rampant, wanton. You know, like, uh, you know, I mean, as long as it can go, uh, however it goes, you know, uh, like that is that is my number one. Um, And it's Mm -hmm. what it's really the thing that actually got me into hedonism is the fact that pretty much every other philosophy said that's not okay, or that that has a purpose. Mm -hmm. No, it has no purpose beyond what I ascribe to it. You know, I mean, and because like even stoicism, you know, puts sex as something that is meant to like, you know, procreate like that. That is a central aspect of that. And then that procreation comes with a, uh, a duty to the rest of the world Mm -hmm. that you leave it better than you found it. Mm. There's no, where the fuck did that duty come from? I can't even imagine, like, how can you even measure that inside of a per inside of a human being? What? Like, because my blood moves at a certain PSI, that means I owe the world something. What the fuck? Like, like where, where does that come from? But, uh, I mean, my, my, my point being is that, yeah, it, it's different for everybody. That's a great question. Uh, but for me, I guess those are the couple of ways that I really practice hedonism mm. and reading. Oh, man. Oh, reading. Yeah, yeah. Give me give me a great book. And and so many books are great. Uh, yeah. You know, give me a great book and, and just lounging on a couch. And oh, absolutely. <laughs> I liked what she said about um that she thinks hedonism is part of self-care, but not all of what self-care entails. I, I agree with that statement, I think. You know. Yeah, so I think for hedonism to even work, it requires empathy, which is an aspect of your biology. This isn't just something that, I mean, yes, you can develop and foster it, but... It's How does na- it require empathy? Well, because that's what keeps you from like a person that's actually in touch with their empathy, which everything, you know, almost every, I mean, rats have fucking empathy. Oh, Oh, you have to have empathy for like your future self to know whether something's going to make you happy or whatever. Well, that's, it's what keeps this idea that happiness is everything. Empathy is what keeps that from turning into people killing other people. Because if you actually have empathy, it doesn't make you happy. You you wouldn't do that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So I I mean like, and, and, and look, you know, it's not like that these people are normal people. Like their empathy has sadly, either from growing up or whatever, has been, you know, trodden on, beaten out of them or Which something people? like that. Like people that that would say that killing makes them happy oh, or I people see. that yeah, would, yeah. you know, say the sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so empathy is is a pretty big part of it. But it's not like it's not necessarily integral to hedonism. Hedonism, is a, hedonism exists on its own. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would agree with that statement, too, that there are things outside of it that are a major part of self-care. And I mean, you know, you need empathy for self-care, I would say. Mm, yeah, I would say part of my personal idea of hedonism is um well, one of the things that I'm, I'm doing right now is um, I have these 
these lights, these gentle, like soft lights. So like Himalayan salt lamps and sure. candles. And those make the environment so aesthetically pleasing for me that I view it as a hedonic pleasure. I like yeah. sometimes I like, especially in the winter, I really like enjoy lighting candles while I work and just working on an audiobook. Sometimes it's like ignoring my phone for a while right. <laughs> is a hedonistic pleasure because it allows me to focus on the moment and like what's actually around me instead of the world of the internet, which we can so easily get sucked into. Yeah. Um, doing yoga, doing workouts, taking a shower is like very hedonic sometimes for me. I, I actually also view my practice of intermittent fasting as a hedonistic thing because when you fast for 24 hours, we do one meal a day, you and I, mm -hmm. uh, dinner. Uh, when you fast, it enhances your perception of how delicious food is, the smells, the tastes, the feeling of it hitting your stomach and feeling satiated. It enhances all of that when you fast for a long time before breaking the fast. And so fasting for me is part of like is part of hedonism. And when I get to eat that one meal a day, I can eat like a bigger I can feel like I'm eating a big meal. And that yeah. feels good to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though it's not really like blowing my calorie budget for the day or it's not like a lot of food. It's not more food than I need um, because it's limited to one meal, but it feels like it's a lot. And so, yeah, I view that as a big part of hedonism for me. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you the one thing that I don't do to to practice my hedonism, as they say, uh, I've, I don't think I've ever met somebody who said that they they spent um, five hours on the Internet and were happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, okay, one last question. This one is about a bachelor party. They say, this is a guy, he says, sorry, 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 I need to vent. I have to go to a bachelor party and thus pitch in for the expenses. It seems like it's one of those weekend long things and no way I'm doing that, but I still have to pitch in. I hate bachelor parties and weddings, and I don't know anyone else invited to the party except the groom. I was pretty much drafted into a group text with all of them. Ugh. Thankfully, I'm not in the wedding. At least there's that. I can't not go. It'd be rude or something. So he just wanted to vent. But what do you think of that situation? Ooh. Well, I share his frustration. Got some empathy for him? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> I mean, because... I hear you. It's bachelor and bachelorette parties. There is just so much weird gender stuff that goes into those and weddings. It it really freaks me out on a deep level. <laughs> Makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, that whole process, you know, if yeah. somebody's happy in it, okay. But like the whole marriage process and all the, the, the traditions that surround it, mm -hmm. like I, the, the last gendered traditions. <laughs> yeah. The last bachelor party that I remember going to like, it, cause you kind of can't win because all right. Yeah. I don't need to see strippers, you know, like, like I just don't. You know, we can just right. hang out and talk, whatever. You wouldn't choose to go to a strip club, right? In, unless this person was choosing it for you and basically saying, come on, you have to go. Or, uh, I mean, or you're I not go, really my friend. I would go to a strip club, but I'm just, for this purpose, it feels very strange. Like, I, mm. I, I think I think bachelor and bachelorette parties, like, are very strange in and of themselves. Like, their very existence is odd. Right. You know, like, it's this like, one last night of living a wild I'll life. I'll start my New Year's resolution tomorrow, right? Like, exactly. why not start it now, right? If yeah. you really want to be living the married life, why not just start now? You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, like we were just talking about blowout. <laughs> right. We were just talking about hedonism and how, you know, you get a lot of criticism around that. Oh, but apparently there's one night 
for every person that's willing to get married where they get to be one. Oh, why don't you? Oh, that's so great. Why do you want to do this in the first place? Maybe you should just live that way all the time. You know, maybe you <laughs> right. should just do this. And if you're not sure and you, you're using it as a test to challenge yourself, like maybe test yourself in a different way before you actually plan the whole wedding, you know? <laughs> right. And it's there's there's so many to use the term again. There's so many cultural memes around it. Like if there aren't strippers, if the birth, if the cake, that huge cake that comes in doesn't have somebody jump out of it, you're disappointed. You're like, oh, what the hell? Even if you didn't want it, even <laughs> right. if you didn't want it to happen, yeah, yeah. you're still, you feel, you walk away with this feeling of disappointment. It's like, ah, there should have been something, mm-hmm. you know? So you can't win with these things. It's a pain in the ass. And, yeah. and also like, don't you think it's a little bit shitty sometimes when someone expects you to pay for it? Like it's, it can be really expensive sometimes and that can be a burden on some people. Yeah. So. All right. Well, we hear you, man. Um, sorry you have to do this. We get it. And thanks for writing in. This has been Sex and Science Hour. The after show's coming up. Stay tuned if you're leaving us now. Thanks for listening. You just we'll be back heard next Sex week. and Science Hour. Game over. Play again next week. Back to the after show brought to you by stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. If you would like to be a part of our after show, all you have to do is go shopping through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. There you can find the items that are discussed on our after show. And uh, yeah, it's all it's a good time had by all. And, you know, we won't see that you got it, but we will see that it was purchased and we'll talk about it on the next show. And um, I think it's a, I think it's a fun game. Look, <laughs> Where did that come from? I don't know. I don't know. Something Why in the music that in your... just just made me think La Cucaracha. Okay. I yeah, didn't. I that think happens that's... to me sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that song's like prophetic. Like you know, I think the Mexicans were singing about you know, Trump. Wash... Yeah. Yeah. That's you know, it's amazing. <laughs> I didn't even finish. What I was going to say Washington D.C. I didn't even finish <laughs> it, but you knew. You knew. That's because that it is. It's a goddamn prophecy. <laughs> that that song. Well, actually, I don't even know what the song says. It might say something nice about cockroaches, but I, yeah, I, I forget. Like, I mean, that's the only line that sticks out in my head. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but man, like a New York cockroach, that guy. All right. Oh God. Okay. Anyway, what was purchased through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com this week? Well, we had an item that I think you'll like, Brian: the personal internet address and password logbook. This is a little Ooh, black, one. little black book. Yeah. Someone now, bought one of these a little while back. They did, yeah. I wonder if they heard that show or somebody heard that show and picked one up. Yeah. This is $8, and it's a personal security device. It is a literally a little black book with lines where you can write down your passwords and stuff, and if you ever need to, you can burn it. Yeah, that's that's my <laughs> $8. Always, yep, that's always my advice. This, I think these are the best password managers, and exactly, uh, I mean, again, two quick points. One is 
if somebody comes is coming after you, you can light that on fire mm-hmm. and nobody's bringing it back. Mm-hmm. Nobody's figuring that shit out. Uh, the other part is that today when homes get raided, swatted, whatever, um, it's to the point now, as I understand it statistically that, that, you know, these law, that law enforcement does not go for the books. They do. They immediately run for electronic devices drives, yeah. and they will, they, they almost ignore uh, books and things like this. So mm-hmm. it, it's some of the safest stuff you can have. Yeah. Right. That's really interesting. Now, do you recommend that in your book, Dark Android? Um, I don't get into that in my Dark Android book. Okay. I mean, I think I mention it. I think I mention a little black book. Okay. Um, but Dark you know, Android is a little black book. That it is. <laughs> 2017 edition. Go to darkandroid.info if you want to buy a copy. Um, oh, yeah. But like if I don't, if you're not using... I mean, there, there's options. There's KeyPass and LastPass. Those those serve different functions. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. but if you're not, if you, if you want a hard a hard copy, real world solution. Yeah, that there's your that's ticket. That's as good as it gets. Yep. Eight dollars. All right, somebody got a, a remote for Roku TV, fifteen eighty nine. That's good. It's an Insignia remote. That's good. Nice. We, have, we have a Roku, don't we, Brian? It's built into the TV we bought. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have bought one otherwise. Right. But yeah. Gerber EAB light pocket knife. This is cool. $8 pocket knife. It has a little kind of like an exacto blade in it. It's just a, you know, little clip on pocket knife that nice. you can keep on. Handy. I used to carry a knife around in my pocket. It was really useful for opening boxes and it was a nice knife that my ex-boyfriend got me. Um, I I thought it was great, but people freaked out a little bit about it. Which is so weird. I mean, I, I, I used to do that for a long time too. I would actually carry like those, uh, I still have mine cause you can replace them for free, you know, because it's a Stanley, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just like the, a really nice box cutter knife, mm-hmm. you know, where it has the, you can replace the razor on it. That yeah. way you don't have to worry about sharpening yeah, it or anything. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I would use that so often every single day, you know, whether because an Amazon package came in, you know, when I oh, got yeah. home from it's work really or something. for opening stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, so. Or it, you could just, you know, take a cucumber out of your lunch bag or whatever slice it up yeah and you never know like in the car it's amazing how often you want a knife you know like if you're going shopping and, yeah. and the things like this like it's really really interesting how, how how useful these things are but yeah so frowned upon right for whatever reason yeah i don't know well that person won't be frowned upon right on <laughs> hopefully somebody got my magic mud activated charcoal tooth powder this is i actually have this exact same stuff it's really good it's this black charcoal powder that you brush your teeth with and believe it or not even though it's black it whitens your teeth yeah amazing how that works yeah we've the, met her she's she's actually really cool the the woman jessica that's, Arman, yeah that's behind who created it, it. yeah yeah um, and now they actually have toothpaste as well. They have like a clove one that has like the My Magic Mud in it with coconut oil. Nice. And it's all natural products. Like, you know, there's no fluoride. There's no, um, there's no like crap in it, you know. Right. It's like, this is the whole natural dentistry thing, which I don't know. I'm, I think, the, you know, maybe the jury's still out on it. But this is a great product. Like it gets your teeth feeling really clean. Yeah. I tried it once and I was hooked on it. And I've been getting it ever since. And it's it's like 15 bucks for a huge jar which will last you like a long time, years. like six months. Maybe, yeah, maybe <laughs> even years. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and it, it comes with a really cute little packet that has like education about how to use it. Like basically you don't want to splash it all over the sink because it can it can be a little bit messy. So spit low and uh, you're good. Right. Good to go. All right. Somebody got a stainless steel mug, 20 ounce red uh, by Zoji Rushi good. for 22 bucks. Does it have any special features? Yeah, it's it's kind of like just a thermos or whatever. I think yeah, it's, keeps, it keeps it warm. 
Nordic Naturals Ultimate Omega-3s supports heart-brain immune health. Um, That's the claim, anyway. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. (laughs) This um, This is fish oil. So oh. from anchovies and sardines, nice. and purified. Yep, I love fish oil. Yeah, I have it every day me too. Now, how much is this? Two thousand milligrams of EPA DHA. It's like if you want to get a lot of fish oil, you kind of have to get used to swallowing oil. Yeah, <laughs> like the to liquid just drinking yeah. it. But um, you know, this pills look pretty concentrated, I suppose. Nice. Advanced strength ultra probiotic, fifty billion CFU with time release. For twenty five dollars for uh, for a thirty day supply, I think like that. Good probiotics. Yes, we want. If you're tracking your farts, you might as well have some probiotics, like we talked about. <laughs> Star Wars Death Star Technical Companion from nineteen ninety one. Oh, nice paperback nine ninety. Hell yes, yeah, man. Someone's diving deep. All right. Actually, I know it some is. nerd. Yeah, <laughs> we we had the nerd who bought the Star Wars games last week. Uh, right in the source books. Yeah, the source books. Yeah, I yeah. don't even know. And he he might have bought this too, but he yeah he might have bought this too. But right on, baby, because I, I consider that man a brother. So oh absolutely. yeah, I mean nerd in the best possible. If yes. I call you a nerd, understand that it's a good thing. Yeah. Like I consider myself a nerd. I'm not that exact type of nerd. I might be a different strain of nerd, but I'm still a nerd. So. <laughs> Believe me, it's not an insult. Anyway, <laughs> somebody got some stuff for their Hoover maneuver. <laughs> Hoover wind tunnel upright type Y vacuum bags, microfiltration, 18 pack for 12 bucks. All right. <laughs> got to give them the Hoover maneuver. Phillips Norelco <laughs> multi groom tool, all in one series, 3000, 13 attachment trimmer. For your yeah. beard or your pubes. I have. Did you have this? No, I, I have such a hard time finding, finding ones beard that can really handle this because I have this terrible Janish hair that, you know, wherever I. It's wh- not wh- terrible. Well, whatever part of the body that it happens to be. <laughs> I have a, you know, a genuinely hard time with this. And I actually have very little experience. Like I've never really grown out a beard before. Now I've had it forever. And it's so funny because, uh, you know, Facebook, not that I really use that anymore. But it brings up the memories, you know, and oh, I'll see yeah, pictures yeah. of myself from like even last year or something when I didn't have it, which is hard to believe. I've only had it for like a year. But um, like, I, I think I, I look ridiculous without it. Like, I think I look absolutely ridiculous. So I want this thing forever. And so I I think you look good both ways, but that's just my well, opinion. I, I appreciate that. I yeah. But I just recently found and I, I think it was the Phillips. I just recently found one that really does the job like and, and it it. it you know, it handles my beard very well. Excellent trimmer. Do you know off the top of your head what is the the name of it or the model number? Um, I could find it quickly. Okay, sure. Yeah. Well, somebody also got a case for their Philips uh, multi groom tool. It's a it's a carrying case for fifteen ninety nine. I love that. that. Helps I keep it all organized. You know, like almost anything I buy, I'm going to pay another fifteen bucks for a case. <laughs> yeah, I case yeah. everything. Yeah, no, that's a good thing. Yeah, to have my hard sure. drives, my three DS, my my microphones i mean like i'll get a case for every little fucking thing it's it's really it's almost pathetic mm. um <laughs> it's <not> but, pathetic. <laughs> no you're just okay organized. so here it is the the phillips norelco beard trimmer series 3500 20 built-in mm. length settings qt 4018 cool so that's, that's the one that i got and i'm very happy with it all right well if you want to be like brian stuff.sexandsciencehour.com and i get too many people to tell me they do <laughs> <laughs> Electric kettle. Somebody got electric kettle that boils water. Uh, 
Mm, what kind of kettle is this? Can't exactly tell, but it's the number one bestseller in coffee serving sets. All right. And it's currently unavailable, so you can't buy it even if you wanted to. <laughs> 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 Somebody got a, I want to save that one for last, actually, because that's sexy. Okay. Uh, somebody got an umbrella who has a safe lock design, Teflon umbrella, windproof, $15. Big fan. That's good to have it in your bag, you know, in your car. Yeah, I love Teflon umbrellas. I use one myself. Yeah. Sunzo Pro Android 6.0 TV box, uh, HD streaming device. Oh, okay. For $30. That's handy. Boost Elite testosterone booster formulated to increase T levels and energy. Nine powerful ingredients, including tribulus fenugreek. And what else? Make you a man. Man, Those are like man, L-arginine. Man. Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe it's arginine. Some other things. Yeah. yeah. So, cool. you know, I'll tell you, I experimented with this. Oh, here's here we go. Tribulus terrestris, horny goat weed. Yep. Fenugreek <laughs> extracts. Yep. Maca root. Yep. Uh, that's all I can see right now. Okay. But yeah, those are all like associated with testosterone. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah. And, and sex drive, things like this. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, I experimented with this for about a year. In fact, I called it the Hyde initiative as an H Y D E. Okay. Yeah. And I was taking this stuff like every day, like twice because you had to split it out, you know, cause I wasn't taking it all in one thing. Mm-hmm. And granted, I already have like a really crazy high sex drive like crazy mm-hmm. um and i was wondering and i pro- i'm sure i talked about this on sex and science hour at some point i was you wondering did. yeah i was wondering like could i actually like increase that like is there is there a way to make that like somehow higher and i still don't get why you really wanted to know about that well, you know, i mean no who else would do that no i i because well here's what happened is i go on DuckDuckGo and I, i'm looking for it to see if anybody else has even tried that and nobody else has ever tried. And so I was like, oh, well, this, hey, this could be my niche, you know, <laughs> but it, it didn't, I didn't feel necessarily that after a while, I just didn't feel that it was necessarily helping, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a bunch of other health benefits. And I think this is well worth trying out. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, you know, or if, Hey, look, if it's somebody with like a lower sex drive, perhaps, and I'm not making any claims on who this person is, I have no idea who bought this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, maybe it would be helpful. I don't, I don't know. You know, tribulus is the one ingredient there that that seems I think has like the most kind of research backing it. Yeah. So, so here's the ingre- here's all the ingredients. I found the list. So tribulus terrestris, a flowering plant extract that supports testosterone levels and helps build lean muscle mass. Mm-hmm. Fenugreek extract, herb used to encourage reduction in body fat, support exercise performance, and increase endurance. Fenugreek is actually supposed to help women with lactation as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it does something to the sex hormones there. Maca root, Peruvian root traditionally used to enhance energy and increase stamina. That's code for penis pills, by the way. <laughs> zinc, zinc citrate, vital mineral believed to support testosterone levels. I've read that, yeah. Yep. Diindole, zinc too, yeah. Yeah, uh, diindole methane included in the formula to promote increased testosterone levels. Panax ginseng, East Asian root, traditionally used to improve concentration and physical stamina while reducing stress. Uh, Tongkat Ali extract, 100 to 1. Evergreen plant native to Southeast Asia, believed to promote performance in men. That's a penis pill, folks. <laughs> I can read the code. Yeah. I, know what they, I know what they mean. 
And Yohimbe bark extract, tree bark native to South Africa, often taken to amp up energy and athletic performance. It's also taken to get a boner. Uh-huh. <laughs> so which is it? Does it make you better in the gym or does it give you a boner? There's only one way to find out, really. Uh, I would take something if something promised both. Yohimbe <laughs> is one of those things that they often say is like herbal Viagra. So it might just be a vasodilator, and that could help with your workouts as well as getting mm. a boner if you have ED okay. or whatever. Yeah. All right. So there you go. Cool. I hope you enjoy this. Um, that's a cool That's a cool thing. Uh, and our last item, I saved the best for last because this is a sex toy. Uh, heating rabbit vibrator. This is cool. So rabbit vibrators have a dildo part and a vibrator part that goes on the clitoris and sometimes they do little rotating motions that kind of twist around Um, this one's usb rechargeable waterproof and it has a heating element which is really nice because like i don't ladies i don't know if you've ever tried to put a cold sex toy in your puss it's not that nice you know you want something warm i like something warm you know of course who doesn't right which is one reason i like i really like um Stainless steel and glass dildos yeah. because they can be warmed up and they, they can hold the heat. Glass, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, I mean, they can feel really cold if you just use them cold, but if you run it under hot water for a little bit, um, they feel really nice and they hold the heat really well. And they have this very firm feeling as well. This one uh, that the person bought is made out of silicone, it looks like. So I don't know how well the silicone holds heat, but. Uh, give us a review. <laughs> Let us know how it goes. I um, hope you enjoy this. Rabbit style is a very popular style. Of sounds like a great buy. Uh, sounds like a great buy for thirty two ninety nine. So thank you for going to stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. Makes our after show possible. If you want to be a part of it, just go there, do your shopping, and we'll see you on the after show. We won't know who you are, but we'll thank you and appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Sex and Science Hour, everybody. We'll be back at you next week. Sexandsciencehour.com. Have a great one. Woo!